QVC Quality Violent Cinema. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the fifth episode of Quality Violent Cinema. I'm your host, Ian, with your other host, Christian. And today we're going to be getting into bootlegs and the business behind it. Bootlegs, mixtapes, all that Mondo stuff. Um, And then also we have a special guest that's going to be coming on in just a second. Uh, That's Jonathan Doe. He's with Putrid Productions and Vile Video Production. He also has a podcast, the Uneasy Terrain Explorers Club, and YouTube channel called Cinema's Underbelly. So he's kind of doing a lot right now. He's got a lot on his plate. We've kind of become acquainted with him over the interwebs. Uh, Christian's been talking to him a lot. I've messaged him once or twice. And it's going to be exciting to kind of pick his brain, and then we'll get into the topic with him a little bit later. First off, let's kind of go over what our topic's going to be about tonight. Bootlegging in definition is the unofficial distribution or redistribution of uh, of a film. Or really anything. Anything can be bootlegged. If it's unofficially released through somebody else that isn't the official releaser or doesn't have the rights to it so and um, but that, that can go into a lot of different things and in different territories too and that's not just horror that gets bootlegged like um, battles get fought all the time of um you know asian bootlegging of just you know everything every film you can think of has some kind of bootleg um problem attached to it yeah and it's really big in um in countries outside of the united states because uh, it's not as illegal in their country to be bootlegging our stuff. Um, so if you were to go to a street market in, say, Mexico, you'll see you know all the movies that are in theaters, maybe not even out in theaters yet, for sale on DVD, uh, just ready to go. Um, so it's very popular in you know, every country outside of the United States. Uh, we do have some pretty strict laws here about it, but... It's a little bit easier to get away with in some other countries. Yeah, and, and so and we're going to the topic of like why then do people buy it? I mean, and there is necessities into it, um, especially if you're trying to get films that are just not released um, into the states. Um, that happens a lot in Japan, uh, where you're just the only way to have a copy of this is to have a bootleg bootleg copy. So yeah, and so that goes into a, a big business outside of that of people um, or selling dead files that are just you know, things that um, don't have anything attached to it and are basically free to... Or say it's uh, something that somebody made on their video camera, like a shot on video thing, and they didn't have money to distribute it, so that maybe they only made 50 copies, and those copies are worth, you know, a 1000 bucks or 500 bucks each. Right. Pretty hard to get. Yeah. Um, and, you know... Especially student, like uh, first films for a lot of big directors when they um, they just happen to, you know, it's their first film. They, so they didn't need to make that many. And all of a sudden they get big in this big film and all of a sudden that first release is ridiculously expensive and no one wants to pay $3,000 for a copy. Yeah. So, I mean, it definitely has a lot to do with uh, accessibility of certain things as well as... Uh, and then there's also the... The censorship, if something is, you know, so disgusting that it wasn't released in a, in a country, then you're going to have to end up going through the bootleg market to get copies of it. So, 
there's a lot of reasons for bootlegs. Uh, sometimes they can actually be uh, problematic when it comes to companies, especially smaller horror companies. Like, you know, we talk a lot about Unearthed. Um, Tetra has a bunch of problems right now. Yeah, and, uh, there's a lot of drama going on with them and probably a lot of other companies that, you know, we could throw names out there, but I don't know if we... Yeah, I don't want to throw anybody in the bus because yeah. I get it because there's a lot of just necessities of, like, these people... People ultimately just want these films, and if you make them available, then they'll you know they'll buy them and, and they'll purchase them. And people see that all the time with how popular Unearthed uh, has become, and that's because they put out hard to find films and just make it readily available, and that's a niche and it, it makes money. Yeah, and uh, if you look at Unearthed's catalog, I'd say a lot of their movies are movies that before Unearthed put them out, the only way to get a copy of them was to buy a bootleg. So, I mean... I'm yeah, just a guinea pig I, in general. I could think of an example of Red, the Red Room movies, Red Room 1 and 2. I ordered bootlegs online of DVD-Rs before Unearthed had even put them out. And shortly after I got them and watched them, Unearthed did release them, uh, which I bought, you know, bought both of them. And uh, it was so much better quality, too. So, it's I, I think it's worth, you know, paying money and getting a good version of it too I, I do have to say earth if you are listening please just figure out a way to do mozani and even if it's just shitty put it on the attach to something else just get it out and, and while you're at it uh i know you own it maybe look into kyoko versus yuki which is daisuke yamanuchi's other movie that's a little less talked about but it's pretty hilarious like softcore porn slash violence uh movie and also what did he do girl hell 1999 i think so, yeah, all of his movies. Maybe just do a Daisuke Yamanuchi collection because he, he puts out some filth. Yeah, for sure. And then just have that as a, a thing and just be like, it's not, you know, yeah. restored, but it's there. Yeah, because, yeah, a lot of that, that filth, uh, that shot on video, Japanese stuff uh, is, was huge in the bootleg market, including the guinea pig movies. You know, Charlie Sheen, when he saw guinea pig, that was probably before Unearthed even put it out so you know he he probably saw a bootleg of of guinea pig when that whole story blew up so yeah yeah and i mean unearth wouldn't be around where there wasn't bootlegging yeah so yeah yep. talk about a success story that's definitely them and speaking to that and that's going to be our, our um into the kind of our our guest um because he's definitely been one of those people that started as a fan of horror and then got his his hands in some bootlegging and then it's making a career out of it. So that's kind of our, our whole intro here. Um, we're going to get into our conversation with Jonathan Doe. And when we're done, we'll probably do kind of an outro. Uh, just Christian and I go over kind of some things. And uh, so stay tuned for the very end of the show. And we'll catch up with you in just a second. <laughs> All right, we're back, and right now we're with our guest on Zoom, Jonathan Doe. With how us you doing, tonight. guys? Hey, how's it going? I'm doing good. Good. We're uh, both frequent viewers of your channel, listeners of your podcasts, and we both got a chance to check out that screener of your new film, Barf Bunny. Thank you very much for letting us take a look at that early. Oh, of course. First off, we wanted to ask, you know, probably the, what you've pr- answered in interviews before, what brought you to this, this whole... Uh, lifestyle 
that you're living? Uh, I've been into horror as far back as I can remember, at least like seven years old. And I've wanted to be a filmmaker. I don't know. It's the first time I saw Jurassic Park when I was a kid. And uh, I used to, my dad worked in media. And so he had like access to like blank VHS tapes and stuff. And I would just take the blank VHS tapes and I would like wrap them in paper and draw my own uh, covers of movies I fantasized about making. I just was obsessed with things that were scary. Uh, A lot of that came from uh, some traumatic stuff I experienced as a kid. And I kind of used horror as kind of a outlet for me to explore the things that I was scared of. And I would ask my babysitters and stuff like, what's the scariest movie ever made? And they told me about like The Exorcist and Night of the Living Dead and things like that. And so I would go to the like local mom and pop video stores and look at the covers and my parents wouldn't let me rent anything, but I would just look at the covers and just like perseverate almost on like, what, what could this movie be? You know, I got older and I discovered the internet and I found out about Cannibal Holocaust. And this was before uh, Grindhouse releasing did their whole like 25th anniversary or anything like that. So being naive, I didn't really know like how to get my hands on it. And I was like 13 at the time. So I don't have access to a credit card. I can't like go on eBay and buy it. So I would go to the mall with my friends and just try to find Cannibal Holocaust. And in the process of doing that, I kind of came across all these other exploitation films. And I bought a VHS copy of I Spit on Your Grave. And I found out about uh, House on the Edge of the Park and Jungle Holocaust, all the other Jungle Cannibal films that had been released by Shriek Show. And uh I just kind of fell down that rabbit hole and fell in love with it. Yeah. And, I feel uh, it just takes one in the genre and then all of a sudden you're hooked. Yeah. Yeah. So. And I, I think you and I kind of had a similar experience. Um, I've been kind of, I've been doing it since I was 13. So, and I'm 34 now, so it's been a while, but uh, we both went to Suncoast video at the mall. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That was a good store. That was a good store. I remember Jeez. That. And it's like, now thinking back about it, they had like, lucio fulci posters and like evil dead toys and like this is before like you know nowadays you can find some of that stuff like hot topic and stuff but back then you know they had like crazy italian horror films just you know buying physical copies as well as like shaw brothers like kung fu movies and just every all this eclectic stuff that you would never see in physical format nowadays yeah, it was it was a gold mine. I mean, it was a great place for a thirteen year old to explore and find yeah, things. So. Definitely, like, yeah, they cool. had to give a shit. I mean, you could be a thirteen year old and they would sell it to you no matter what. So I never ran into any issues with. Oh, life. same. <laughs> I bought City of Living Dead on VHS when I was like fifteen or sixteen. So yeah, it was no problem. Yeah, I got kind of later into the um, buying or getting into it my own thing, but um, my mom worked at the little movie store with a porn shop in the back so they didn't really care you know what kind of censorship so that's what kind of got me into diving into the more obscure so i get that so you got free porn no no but i would sneak off when she was vacuuming and kind of like peek in (laughs) nice so i I had a question um we're gonna get more into the bootlegging later because that's our topic but first we kind of wanted to do a little interview with you since you're pretty interesting fella what got you into like first off the bootlegging uh movies and and also production of your own videos um because you have made a few different things it seems like everything that you've made so far under the under your label putrid productions is kind of a different uh medium Mm -hmm. um one's a compilation 
Uh, most recently, it's a uh, Barf Bunny, and then another one's like an anthology. So, kind of talk a little bit more about that. Like, are you trying to put out like a wide range of mediums, or, or what's going uh, on with that? Yeah, I just don't want to be. A, I mean, I have I have a lot of different interests. You know, I mean the 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 like when you're talking about genre films, there's so many genres within that. You know, and so I don't want to pigeonhole myself or put myself into a box and be like, oh, I only make pseudo snuff movies or I only make fetish gore movies you know I want I I like my interests go beyond that I like all different kinds of genres I like all different kinds of mediums and so I kind of want to take a crack at all of those different things and I just have this fear of being like a one-trick pony and just making the same thing over and over and over again and people getting tired of me so I really want to push myself and explore different things and just try different stuff and yeah, you, I don't know. So. You can definitely see that in your collection when I when you go into your, your YouTube and in your intro videos. And uh it actually to be honest, like you're one of my first uh people to kind of listen to when it comes to the extreme cinema of being on YouTube. And mm-hmm. um and a lot of the stuff more recently was because I was already into a lot of the films that you're diving into. And I was like, oh awesome. Somebody actually like into this kind of shit. Um, and so, and even talking about like, um, Saudi screams and which things like that, I don't think so brought up a lot. And even in the extreme horror community, um, unless you're like really into the niche. Yeah, that's something that I do. I mean, I, I go on YouTube and I honestly don't watch a lot of other horror YouTubers. I'll, I'll basically look, look and see what is kind of going on right now. Like I've got people I'm friends with that are YouTubers and stuff, but I typically will just look and see, is anyone talking about this film? And if not, then I feel like I might as well give it a service and cover it. And like the Saudi Scream films is a perfect example. No one's talking about the Saudi Scream films. So no, that's for a, sure. a good thing to cover. That's the big reason why I started this podcast and, and potentially this channel, my own side is, but um, it's the same kind of thing. It's, I noticed the same kind of way as there's not enough people talking about this. And so it's, it's uh, almost an untapped market, but I wouldn't say untapped, but um, unsent- it's not fully saturated. And yeah. that's that's why I love your podcast, um, Uneasy Terrain Explorers Club. I've listened to I, most pretty much every episode. I've probably still got a few to catch up on, but I've l- definitely listened to the big hitters like the Bureau, Stephen Bureau one, uh, the Cannibal Holocaust. Uh, what was the actor's name? Um, Carl Gabriel York. Yeah, and that was fantastic interview. You got to check that out if if you haven't yet uh, for, for all our listeners. Um, and then. Uh, uh, Darren Ramage, who uh, <laughs> was an interesting fella. I don't think I'd hang out with him in person, but <laughs> but just these are people that over. I've never heard uh, interviews with, and that most people wouldn't think to get interviews. Even Ginger Lynn, and um, you had some other adult stars on there. Um, first yeah, off, how how did how did you get in connection with these people? Honestly, I get kind of lucky. I mean, like uh, Ginger Lynn, I was at a convention, and she was at the convention. And I was familiar with her to a degree, but like, she's not my favorite porn star or anything like that. And I was with my friend and he was just totally fanboying out that she was there. And uh, I, I knew that she was an iconic figure within like the golden age of porn. And so I just reached out to her when we were at her booth and I said, Hey, I've got a podcast. If you got some free time, would you want to be a part of it? And she's like, yeah, totally. She's like a total sweetheart. So she was totally down to do that. So um that was just kind of like 
I wasn't reaching out to her. I just kind of, we just kind of crossed paths. And so that happened. Um, the whole thing with Carl Gabriel York, Cannibal Holocaust is probably one of my favorite movies. And same. Um, honestly, like I really don't fanboy out that much, but when I was probably, I think I was probably like 17 and I was at, um, what was it? Uh, Fangoria's Weekends of Horror or whatever. And he was there. And that was the only time in my life I actually like lost my mind that he was there. Like I never thought he, I, I mean, that's such an obscure film. The fact that you, I never thought I would ever meet someone from that movie. You know, Seriously. I just thought, so um, he was on my list of people I definitely wanted to interview. And I basically like found him on Facebook and wrote to him and he's just a really nice guy. And he's just kind of like a dad now. And he's just a really down to earth guy. And he, he's, was down to to do the interview so we did the interview um darren ramage uh there's another youtuber named <laughs> stephen bloodworth so stephen bloodworth actually w- like interned at brain damage films and actually has a relationship with darren ramage and he helped me out he said hey man i think i could get you a hookup and get you an interview with darren ramage and i was like that would be awesome and that's one thing that um Stephen Bloodworth and I like talk about all the time is we love Mondo films. We love shockumentary films. And he's got like all these connections with all these people. And so he helped hook up that, that uh, interview. So that was really awesome. Yeah. I think uh, me in my twenties would have loved that. I used to love Mondo films. I can't really watch a lot of the deaf footage anymore. Um, well, it just isn't for me anymore, but I used to be obsessed with it. Like I had the traces of death VHS box set and all the inhumanities and death scenes and stuff. But I sold all that because it's just not interesting to me anymore. Um, but uh, that Cannibal Holocaust interview, um, just he's such a good performer um, for you to talk to him and get that side of him. Like the, he's such a great dude. And then watch the movie and he's like the biggest asshole in the world. Like just shows what such a great performance that is. He's just a true professional. Yeah, he's a he's just a really good guy and he's a great actor and I wish he was in more films, but uh, but I think I don't know. I, C- Cannibal Holocaust is a pretty kind of does something to your reputation, you know. Exactly. So. I mean, you see, you hear the same stories with the Serbian film. Like nobody can get work now from that movie, and it's sad that these movies do that when they're they're so powerful. One last question about your interviews, uh, uh, Nico Clocks from uh, the Vampire of Paris, who's yeah. a, a real cannibal who just got out of jail. Uh, how did you get in contact with him? Uh, so Nico Klaus is actually like a really chill guy and he's got a Facebook. You can just write to him. Uh, he makes like, he got really well known cause he made like a serial killer calendar and he does like paintings and stuff. So you can, and he sells murderabilia. So you could like hit him up about pretty much anything. And so I just hit him up and Honestly, I mean, I, I write to people on a regular basis seeing if they want to be a part of my podcast and I take a lot of L's, but sometimes people say, yeah. And that was an interview that I was a little bit like nervous about doing because I just thought people were going to see it as me glorifying a murder or, or something. But to me, I'm, that whole, the whole point of that podcast is to, I don't know, just explore taboo topics that exist outside of the mainstream and it's rare that you get to talk to someone who's a cannibal and literally ask them like, what's human flesh taste like? And I just couldn't pass that up. And um, I mean, he's, he's <laughs> uh, really, 
a functioning member of society now. He's not doing that stuff anymore. And I think everybody yeah. deserves a second chance. And and so it was really an interesting opportunity to sit and do an interview with him. And it was kind of unnerving to a degree to sit and talk to somebody. And I mean, you listen, you listen to that interview. I asked him what it was like to kill the guy. And he said it felt like squishing a bug, you know? Yeah, he, he goes into very, very detailed about it. So. And that's, that's one thing I try to do with my podcast is just try to be objective and not get put my two cents in, you know, this is an opportunity to just listen to someone and we all have everything's I'm kind of a relativist. <laughs> and so what I think is morally acceptable, I know is going to differ with my guests. And so I'm not going to get into a moral debate with them. I just oh, want to hear about their life, you know, for sure. And not try to argue or debate them. You know, yeah. 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 I, from that interview, I did get some pushback. People were like, how come you didn't call him out or whatever? And it's just like, so that's not your job. Yeah. No, I, I was even thinking that I'm like, I can't believe he's not like speaking up about certain things, but I'm like, Oh, he's just trying to like be objective about it. You know? So I really like that angle. Cause I probably would have like, I probably would have let my emotions get it, get the best of me, you know, and, and you didn't do that. So that was awesome. Yeah. I mean, and I mean, I, I was curious I, in that interview, I asked him, I said, is there anyone that you care about? Like if your friends, if your girlfriend died, would you care? And he, he said, yeah. So I was yeah. curious about that. I didn't know if he was just a completely callous person or, or if there were people in his life that had significance and there's people in his life that have significance. So, yeah, you had some really good questions. So I'm sure a lot of preparation goes into this and are you going to keep doing episodes? Cause I haven't really seen any new ones go up on Spotify or anything. Yeah. It's kind of on pause right now because I'm working on barf bunny and another another project at the same time and uh so basically kind of once the dust settles with both of those then uh then i'll get back into it again but i i don't have like all the time in the world to do all of them so so i think that's a good time to go into barf bunny um do you want to just explain a little bit about that we're not going to give any spoilers we both got a chance to watch it um but you want to just kind of give a synopsis and what people can expect yeah so we were kind of talking about the diversity of my work. And so one thing that I really like to do is kind of like give an homage to different genres I really like. So I made like Carving the Cadaver and Carving the Cadaver was an homage to shockumentary films. Um, and I wanted to make a film that was kind of a love letter to fetish, fetish gore cinema. And I was really influenced by um, films like Terrible Meal and Squirm Fest and um, the Ghost Stories 13 films. And so I wanted to make something that was unique and different, but that clearly was a tilt of the hat to that kind of stuff. And I wanted to make a series. I was, I'm really inspired by the guinea pig, any like anything that's part of a series. So I like the guinea pig films, the American guinea pig films, the Saudi scream films. And so I wanted to do something similar to that. And there's a Japanese art style um, called Uraguru, which translates to erotic grotesque nonsense. And so I wanted to kind of do a Western take on that, this art style and kind of look at different genres through, through this art style. And so the first film I wanted to do was a fetish gore film. And uh, my personal, in my personal life, I'm an emetophiliac. I like puke. And so I wanted to make something that was like that. And uh, I got in contact with Felicia Fisher, who uh, I had on my podcast. I interviewed her for her documentary, The Odd World of Felicia Fisher. And her and I really hit it off on that on that podcast. At the end of the episode, I talked with her and, and she said that she wanted to be in more films. 
And so I kind of proposed just in a metaphilia film with her because she does a metaphilia work and she was down. And I knew I had, um, I was really, the two films that I had in my head was Terrible Meal and the guinea pig film, He Never Dies. I wanted it to be filled with emetophilia, but I also wanted it to have like a big, heavy amount of splatter that you see, like fun splatter, like you see in uh, He Never Dies. So I'm but curious then, on Felicia, sorry, to enter, but uh, does she do anything else besides with Sam Hell and you, or, or has she done anyone, or is it all just all her vomit, mostly just through you two? So she's a, a fetish model. So she does um, her, her own, she's like, she's on, if you follow her on Twitter and stuff, she she does phone sex work. She's a phone sex operator. She does custom fetish videos for people. So you can get in contact with her. And if you want her to do a custom video for whatever, um, she'll do it. She does different kinds of stuff. She does like body hair stuff. She does trampling things like her stepping on food with her feet. She does foot footage stuff. And then obviously like the puke stuff. And from my understanding, Sam originally contacted her to be a part of his Blood Crows Inside trilogy. And that's kind of how she like dabbled in the horror world. But um, but she, it's expanded a lot from there. So she she's worked with Sam. She's worked with me. She's going to be featured in the sixth entry of the um, American guinea pig film. I, I saw that photo. That's cool. Yeah, she's going to be in that. There's also a really kick-ass um, film that's that has an Indiegogo campaign right now called Thrust. That's going to have special effects by Marcus Cook and Jesse Seitz. Actually, Jesse Seitz is like the lead the lead, I don't know what you'd call it, director of special effects on that film. And it's going to have like Lene Quigley in there. It's going to have, uh, cool. I don't know her modern name, but Misty Monday. Like it's going to have like all of these really iconic, badass women from like the horror underground that are going to be in there. And Felicia's going to be in that too. So cool. she's wow. definitely like making her mark in the horror underground right now. She's going to become something big, I think. So is Amidophilia, is that her... That, that's not her main thing she's is that just something that she's kind of just dabbled in or is that a, a like a big side of her career i mean she's kind of a jack of all trades i mean she does all different kinds of stuff and uh but i think she i mean she was doing she was doing a metaphilia things before she ever got in contact with me or sam but i think uh sam and i have showcased that more I mean, I don't, I don't want to speak for her. I don't know what her favorite yeah. fetish is or anything like that, but she yeah, definitely true. is down to, down to puke. So I don't hmm. know. Yeah. And I saw that uh true crime tour. You guys, it looks like you guys have become pretty good friends. Yeah, she's cool. She's really cool. And, and it's fun to work with her because like, I'll, I'll write us write a layout of what we want to do and I'll have these like nasty ideas. And then she's, she's just as nasty as I am. So she, she's like, well, how about we try this or how about we try that? And it's cool to like have someone to brainstorm with and just make gross stuff with. So now that Bark Bunny is all wrapped up and you're shipping it pretty soon, right? Is it- yeah, it's going to come out July 21st. Do you plan in go- into going into more of a, I saw your old short films. It looked like you did kind of like more narrative stuff, um, but mm-hmm. never released anything like that. Or do you think you'll ever do like a narrative kind of plot driven story? Or do you think you'll stick more to, the fetish style kind of like whether it be like a guinea pig style or or more um like squirm fest kind of thing i don't have a, a limit on what i want to do you know if i i actually have some narrative ideas that i would like to do um at some point the the problem with narrative i don't know 
I mean, I, when I make when I make projects, I base it off of the resources that I have available. And so to me, I don't have a lot of resources to like a lot of actors and actresses, especially with COVID right now. Yeah. So I'm not going to sit and write a script for something that involves like five people or 10 people, because I don't know if I can get five people or 10 people. And also the budget with that, you have to pay all those people. So I kind of am hoping that Barf Bunny and the other projects that I'm doing will get me attention. And I hopefully I could get a producer who will who give me more money because all the films I make now are I pay out of my own pocket. So yeah. if I can get the, it's really about money. If I can get the money to make something bigger, I would love to make something bigger and do something that, that has a narrative. And this, and Felicia and I actually shot the second entry in the erotic grotesque nonsense series. And it's a pseudo snuff film and it has more of a narrative uh, structure to it. Uh, but it does incorporate a lot of the fetish, the fetish stuff that we're both into. So, so where are you, where are you at on that? Are you editing now or? Yeah. So that's in post-production right now. It's being edited by Marcus Cook. I, I shot, it's being edited by Marcus and myself. So I did a general edit of it and then he's degrading the film and making it look, cause I shot it on a VHS camera, oh, um, sweet. which already looks I mean, I, we want to make it as authentic as possible. So I shot it on VHS, and right now he's basically uh, just trans, like burnt, like uh, recording it on one VHS and then doing it on another one. And we're trying to make like a third generation bootleg style look. So it's not going to be, awesome. it's not going to be like a pseudo snuff or found footage thing where someone just put a filter on their camera. It's going to be an authentic VHS recorded. Which, if you're really into film or have made films before, like you and me, like. It's so noticeable when people use that filter and you know when you see something like you know the original august underground and it's it seems a lot more real and yeah, yeah. so i mean that's kind of my intention is like i said before with my work i want to give homages or give a thank you to the genres that i'm inspired by and pseudo snuff is definitely one of them so so what are some other good recommendations that you have that kind of cater to uh barf bunny inspirations for barf bunny mm-hmm. well what i was saying before was i was really inspired by by the two references that i had terrible meal and and he never dies but talking with felicia she told me that she was really into like the film gummo and i really liked the film gummo and so we were looking at like kind of a bunny costume and she was like well why, why don't we get a pink one that's kind of like in gummo and mm-hmm. so I was, and, and she's a big fan of John Waters. I'm a big fan of John Waters. And so really it was brainstorming with Felicia and my interest in Terrible Meal and He Never Dies mixed with John Waters. I want to talk about being a fanboy. I got to meet John Waters like in the signing in Seattle. Um, and yeah, I, it was one of the best moments of my life. I still gloat about it and like kind of blush That's awesome. <laughs> when I think about That's it. Awesome. Yeah, I've never met him before. He'd be awesome to have on the podcast. Yeah, uh, yeah, that'd be <laughs> awesome. I don't, I, he probably would. He's such a easy person to talk to. Yeah, I've got a big list of people that I'd love love to get on there. So well, I, I found that's more effective if you meet them in person and talk to them at a convention and like I could give them my card. Then I see more official than just sending them an email. I'm sure they get emails all the time. Right, but uh, yeah, I didn't at the time. It was I was at a different place, but yeah. So kind of what you were oh. saying earlier about you know especially because of COVID, but also your like restrictive budget. Um, so you're making, you made kind of an experimental, um, uh, am I saying it right? Emidophilia? 
emetophilia yeah emetophilia you made it's kind of an experimental emetophilia film and then mm-hmm. now you're doing a pseudo snuff film those movies are and i think it's smart that you're doing that because i think it's going to get viewers and you didn't have to spend a lot of money and you don't need a lot of actors yeah but we're seeing a lot of that in the underground um film uh scene nowadays and you know when you look at 2015 um was you know when i feel like it was really booming you had movies like headless and um you know brian nicholson was putting out stuff and uh you had you know jimmy screamer claws and it's just there was all these kind of big movies with stories and stuff and now that it's very stripped down you're getting movies now like 29 needles and the baroque house movies which are kind of more you know one or one two or three actors and um a lot of uh kind of psychedelic experimental a lot of fetish stuff what do you think about this change in the underground scene over the years and where do you think it's going i think that whether it's the underground or whether it's the mainstream cinema falls into trends and so i think that like you could look at mainstream stuff like uh demonic possession paranormal films were really really big for a while and every, like i don't even know how many movies with the they word just in their name came out yeah and same with uh like found footage found footage was really big within the underground pseudo snuff was really big and i think that basically um when these things when there's a when there's a big wave of a type of subgenre of film it eventually everyone gets hyped on it and then eventually it gets bloated and oversaturated and people get get over it basically and it doesn't mean that the genre the subgenre is bad it just means people get kind of tired of it you know like um i remember hearing people just like rolling their eyes when they heard another found footage movie and i love that genre but i do agree that once everyone and their brother is making a found footage movie or a pseudo snuff movie there's going to be a lot of duds in there you know just 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 as much as there's going to be some good ones and i think that the horror community is just like that in general. The whole genre just gets flooded in every single genre. And yeah, yeah. And so I think people get, I don't know, over it, they're done with it, and it and we move on to the next thing. And so I think with with the if we look back at films, like you look at films like um August Underground and you look at films like um a Serbian film, those are films that really push the boundaries in a practical way with practical effects, you know, so no one actually got hurt. It's all, it's all really good practical effects, but we're always constantly pushing the envelope yeah. and, and you can look at films where, well, what's the next step with that? We'll look at um, the bunny game. The bunny game is an extreme film, but it incorporated real pain in it. It incorporated someone actually being like you do with a cow. So someone really gets oh, branding, branding. Branded, yeah. So, so the actress in that movie really was branded. And that wow. was one of the selling points for that film is someone really got branded. And I feel like that's the next step is, okay, we've done everything that we possibly can think of when it comes to practical effects. What's the next thing? Well, real stuff people really getting um, consensually doing harmful things to their body or engaging in gross things. So whether it's puking or unsimulated sex those are the next steps. You can point to uh, that film Nymphomaniac and all of yeah. the actors that were involved with that and the real sex in there. Or and 29 so think, Needles. I love that film. Yeah, Which, 29 Needles. Yeah. And so to me, the reason we're going into a fetish direction is, well, if you're going to go look for talent who are willing to do these things, you're going to look at the BDSM community 
Um, oh, 100%. And, and so you're going to find people who are willing to get poked with needles or burn themselves or puke or do whatever. Yeah, I just and, watched the documentary Sick about Bob Ferguson. And that, that's crazy. Yeah. And so to me, it's it just kind of was the natural progression that we eventually, like once we crossed into the territory of real real engagement in gross or socially inappropriate behavior, we're going to, it's going to cross over into fetish content. Um, but I'm already seeing that people are getting kind of, kind of tired of that. I've seen posts online where people go, oh, I'm tired of all this fetish, fetish stuff. So I think that just like history shows us with everything else, people are going to get, it's going to get bloated. People are going to get tired of it. And I think from what I can see, the next thing is going to be mixtapes especially with this whole uh, iceberg that came out. That's, yeah. that's the thing that people ask me about all the time. When people ask about reviewing things for my channel, it's all mixtapes. I get contact from people all the time trying to show me the new mixtapes that they've made. There's YouTubers right now who are blowing up just reviewing the bottom tier of the iceberg, yeah. all this stuff. And so to me, I think part of what makes things popular is, is that it's easy and it's accessible. Pseudo snuff is easy and accessible. If you go buy your, if you go borrow your dad's old camera and you get your friends, you can make a pseudo snuff film or a found footage film and mixtapes are even easier. Just go download shit off the internet, you know, and give, yeah. it a, give it a cool name. And so I think that to me, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm anybody, but to me, it seems like pseudo or Fetish films are kind of where we're at right now, but the next the next thing is going to be mixtapes. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, that's unfortunate to me, just because you know I, I'm I love cinema, and I just don't consider a lot of what's at the bottom tiers of the iceberg iceberg to be cinema, because um, you know you look at a lot of it, it's just compilations, and you know nobody like you know sat down and and filmed a, a, a lot of that material. Instead, they just compiled it. So I'm hoping that you know we go back into more like cinematic extreme horror, but that's just wishful thinking on my part. I so, mean, I think, I think that all of these things are still going to exist, you know, like I'm making a pseudo snuff film right now. And even though I feel like that genre has been oversaturated, it doesn't mean that it's dead. You know, people still want to make that kind of stuff. And it depends on how you make it. Yeah. I mean, there's still people out there making really, really good stuff for genres that people are tired of. So yeah. So what's the legality of selling dead format just to kind of get into that and why mixtapes are so popular because of that? Is it legal to sell dead format? Yes and no, mostly no, but it's part, it's kind of just this gray area and it's kind of an area where you just hope you don't get caught. And like a good example, uh, this is the example I give all the time is the film Lucky Sky Diamond, which is the unofficial Mm -hmm. final entry in the guinea pig series. Stephen Byro, who released the guinea pig films, tried to release Lucky Sky Diamond and he couldn't um, because it's stuck in some kind of like legal limbo or whatever. And Stephen told me that it was never going to. That was actually a movie that I bootleg ordered a DVDR back in high school. So, I mean, yeah, I'm uh, mentioning that. So that film steven told me that that film was never going to get released he said that it's stuck in some legal limbo it's never going to get released in japan it's never going to get released in the us or the western world and so that's a situation where uh either you're going to go buy or find hunt down the original vhs and be willing to spend hundreds of dollars for it or you get a bootleg otherwise this film is just going to fall into obscurity and get lost 
And so somebody owns the legal rights to it, but they're not doing anything with it and people are bootlegging it. And it's very unlikely that anyone's going to come and stop you. And in my interview that I did with Darren Ramage, you talked about Darren Ramage. He made a really good distinction that that I think is really important. He said, there's a difference between piracy and bootlegging. And he said, piracy is when you take something that someone owns the rights to, like say I got bouquet of guts and gore and I ripped the copy that I have and I started selling it. Well, that's me taking money away from Stephen Byro. That's me taking money away from unearthed films. I'm taking food out of people's mouths when I do that. But Lucky Sky Diamond is just dying. Nothing's happening to it. And the person who owns the rights to it isn't trying to make money off of it. And honestly, I look at it as a, a service for this film. It's almost like a form of conservation by bootlegging this film because otherwise it's going to become lost. And so that's where bootlegging comes into play. Um, and that's where I think the distinction lies. But I think a lot of people don't make that distinction. I think they just look at the term bootlegging and they go, you're a bad bad person you're stealing movies away from people but i mean i could go on and on about all the different films that are out there that if people weren't bootlegging them they would just disappear and so uh and yeah there's that legality to it but um so what are some of the challenges you've experienced in the bootlegging community like have you gotten a lot of hate a lot of emails on things or any people claiming that you're what you're doing is theft or yeah so when i started putrid productions it was a conservation project and an archival outfit and i was just i was just bootlegging films that were stuck in dead format films that hadn't been released and there were people within the underground that had an issue with me doing that they saw me as i don't know the uh, a leech kind of like the scum of our community. Like I'm part of what's killing it. But, um, but I have that, I make that distinction. I mean, I can't tell you still to this day, how many people write to me and say, Hey, can you burn me a copy of August underground? And right. I say, no, like go hit wow. up Fred Vogel. I'm not going to do that. You know, I know, who, I know who made that movie. I know who owns that movie. I'm not going to make a copy of it. I'm sorry. It's hard to find, but that's not my problem. But mm. if it's in a situation where I don't know what's going on with that movie and it's, and it's, whatever then then i don't think i'm doing something bad i actually think i'm doing something good and i think that there's a lot of people that are able to make that distinction but there's people out there that don't make the distinction or like fist pig where it even says like if somebody sells this to you punch them in the fucking face yeah yeah i mean that's a perfect that's a perfect example and to me we need to bootleg lucky sky diamond and if the person that made made it wants to eventually release it that's one that's one thing that i think people make a lot of mistakes with is they go well if i own a bootleg why would i buy an official release anytime any movie i've ever had a bootleg of gets an official release i buy the official release i had Uh, i had the bootleg of um tumbling doll of flesh and women's flesh my red guts and as soon as i found out that um massacre video put it out i threw that thing in the fucking trash and i got and i got the original one it's got subtitles it's got a trailer like it's it's got things that my bootleg doesn't have it's going to be a better quality and he's a they're supposed to be putting out suicide dolls and i've got the bootleg of suicide dolls but i'm sitting on it waiting for them to release suicide dolls because i'm going to throw that shit in the trash too i mean 
real yeah, actually, still fans of this stuff is that we don't we don't buy the bootleg because it's cheaper we buy the bootleg because there's no other way to get it and once we can no. get an official way to get it we want to support our stu- the studios that we love like i love massacre video i want to i want to give that guy my money you know so yeah no massacre it, push out such good stuff um they do such a good job i mentioned yeah. that in the pre-show of how i bought red room on dvdr and i was trying to get all daisuke yamanuchi's um video movies uh they got kyoko versus yuki and uh, all that that stuff as soon as unearth put out the red room movies threw the discs in the garbage and bought them and the quality was so much better subtitles it's just so much more worth it yeah i mean i think it's i don't think we buy bootlegs because there's no other way to get it and it's, if we can get a way to get it we're going to support the the official way to get, put it out well do you think that um what about the VHS ripping um, of where you could you could get it on VHS? It's just because it's not on DVD. Um, do you think like people should you know feel like that's the better route um, because it's um, because it's also heavily inf- inflated? It's inexpensive as all hell to get a lot of the VHSs. Uh, you're talking about VHSs for like a film that's in dead format, though. Right. Yeah. So like you see, if say you can't, it's not a DVD release, but you can get it on VHS, but you don't want to have to pay, you know, $200. Um, I don't think there's a difference really between you buying the VHS or you buying a bootleg because the money's not going to be going to the filmmaker or the studio because the studio is defunct or the person is gone. There's a reason it's in dead format. So you can give the guy on eBay $200 for the movie and the money's not going to go to to anyone involved with the project or you can buy a bootleg and give someone $20 who also is not involved in the project. It's really up to you on whether, I mean, there's, I know there's diehard VHS collectors out there who are totally down to throw down $300 on a VHS tape. But if you're just, if you just want to see the movie because you've never seen it before and it's got a cult status and you got to get either a, an expired VHS or buy a bootleg, I don't think there's yeah. anything wrong with buying the bootleg because either way, you're not supporting the people. I, th- the I think the only time it gets a problem is when the people that are selling it, then they have a bootleg and they try to sell it for like $250 or, or they try to do and they overinflate that bootleg just because, you know, they can. Um, well, that's one of the situations that I got in trouble with, with um, when I first started Putrid Productions and was doing the bootlegging thing is I pissed off a lot of, other bootleggers um and part of where my mindset was was I've, I've been collecting for a long time i've owned bootlegs for a long time and one thing i noticed was people who were were bootlegging these films not everybody but a lot of people were like hoarding them like hey I've, i'm the only person on the internet that has this you need to pay uh fifty dollars or a hundred dollars for me to send you a dvdr and a paper sleeve like and to me that's that's bullshit and so I would buy the movie and then I would, or they would release, do a super limited release. Like I'm making 15 copies of this and then it's gone and tough shit if you don't have it. And so my idea when I started Putrid Productions was I'm not going to sell it in a paper sleeve. I'm going to put it in a case and I'm going to make it something that gives this film respect and also something that you'd be proud to put on your shelf. And I'm also not going to do limited runs. Like you can get it when you get it and I'm not going to charge it for like sell it for a million dollars. You know, I'm going to sell it for a reasonable price um you will you will number your dvds though so (laughs) (laughs) well i do that with the vile films which are all official releases but uh vile was after 
the whole bootlegging thing. I still I want my blood porn, man. I have everything else of yours except for blood porn, just so you know. <laughs> uh, I'll look and Sand see. Boy. I don't know if I don't know. I, I'm as far as I know, it's officially sold out. I might have some sample copies that were made, but I'll look and I'll look and see for you. But I, I it might be gone. You might yeah. have to. Well, I know there's another person that's releasing it, right? Like uh, Sato, Massive, Massive, or whatever, uh, Messiah. Yeah, so Sato Messiah, yeah. Um, Sander Cage, who runs Sato Messiah, he made that's his movie. He made that movie. Yeah. And I put out the North, the first North American release of the movie, but it's a German film, and Sato Messiah is from Germany. So you can, I mean, he, he just, they're his movies. He sells them now. So if, if you really want the vile video release, you're going to have to hunt it down. But yeah, I'll probably just, talk to him. Because you, you introduced me to Patrick Fonty too, which uh which was awesome. Um I ended up picking up like everything out of his collection. Um because we were at an SB, it was like, oh, it's probably a couple. I was like, well, I almost have everything. Like, what what about just buying your whole thing? He's like, all right, 150 bucks. I'm like, all right. <laughs> yeah, he's uh, he's awesome, dude. And he's like a really good effects artist. Um, he does some really great stuff. You you just reminded me of the days though, of like in the early mid two thousands, like working my some of my first jobs like saving up money to go on these angel fire websites and order like a freaking dvdr to sleeve because nobody else had it well it just wasn't available and they just they charge like 40 bucks for like you know something that you know would was ne- you thought was never going to hit u.s shores but nowadays you know everything's out but yeah that's just crazy to think back about that time i think not too many people would will know what that was like one thing i was interested in is like what's your day job like you know you said you this comes out of your pocket like what are you doing do you feel like you can share like what you do on your i mean you said you just got off work so <laughs> uh yeah to a degree i work uh full-time uh within the psychology field as a therapist uh i won't say specifically for what but i work in mental health and um yeah, that's what I do. My hope, I've got kind of like a whole year year long plan to try to make a transition over to doing film full time. Um, but it all kind of just depends on the success of my YouTube channel, the success of my films. But I know it's achievable. I know it's doable. Um, but yeah, as of right now, I I work in the psychology field. That's great. We need yeah. more mental health professionals. There's not enough in this world to cover what's going on. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, what do you think underground filmmakers need to do to make a living? Like there's a lot of them. I feel like don't work. They think that they can make a career off this. Do you think that's even possible nowadays? I mean, I don't think there's like a secret formula to success as a filmmaker, but I think that there's a couple things that I don't know, just make sense to me. Like I think that it's really important to work very hard on building an audience and building a strong following of people who are interested in your work and are willing to spend money because it's their money that's going to keep you afloat and keep you alive. Um, And so I think the hardest part is building that platform. And then the second part is making content consistently because you can make, you can make a really good movie, but, uh, but it's going to cap off at some point, you know, like say barf bunny, kills it right well there's only so many people in the world who want to see barf bunny like barf bunny want to give me money about barf bunny and once that tapers off and is done my income is going to stop so i need to continue to make content that's 
interesting that people want to see. So that's kind of why I went down the YouTube route and like worked on really hard building that platform and kind of giving myself a reputation um, and then decided to start making movies because I think if I did it the other way around and I was just a nobody and I decided to make barf funny, I think people would just be like, here's another fucking puke video. You Not know, putting all your eggs in one Easter basket. Yeah. <laughs> but I think with my YouTube channel, I've kind of given myself a little bit of a, I don't know, some credibility. Uh, people know that I know about this community. I'm an I'm active member in this community. I know about these films. And so I think people are now like more intrigued, like, oh, I wonder what, what he's going to do, you know? And so, so I think. Do you monetize any of your content, like your podcast or your YouTube channel? Is any of that monetized? My podcast is monetized. My YouTube channel is not monetized. And I, everyone I know who is like a horror YouTuber who monetizes their content is just in constant war with YouTube because YouTube flags every single thing that you do. Like there's certain words you can't use. And that's one thing I don't even worry about on my channel is I just say whatever I want. And so if I'm going to be talking about pedophilia or rape or I don't know, not yeah, having to abbreviate things the same cp or whatever you know yeah and uh so my hope my i'm at eight thousand subs almost nine thousand subs my plan is once i reach ten thousand subs is to start my patreon and hopefully that will that will be a source of income as well as like me selling the all the stuff on future production that's interesting you bring that up because i was wondering if these like there's these iceberg reviewer kind of people that are like you know getting thousands and thousands of views um i think you probably know some of the people i'm talking about mm-hmm. um and i was like man they, they must be making so much money but now that you mentioned that i'm like wow they use a lot of language and and images that would probably get them flagged pretty fast so they're getting views but they're, they're getting views money. but they're probably not making money off of them that i, I know that cold raven that like new yorker kid who like watches all the um he's got patreon yeah he's got patreon he's got a patreon but he does not monetize his stuff and there's no way that he could i wonder how he's doing on that patreon just how he like how lucrative about his content (laughs) i wonder how lucrative that patreon is and like how long that's gonna last for him i mean i'm curious because i wonder if he do an interview i doubt it like crazy so i'm like I don't know. I'm not trying to diss him. I actually think he does some really good stuff, but like, I don't have the time to, <laughs> to like bust out content that, that crazy. So he's got, oh, I'm he's, hoping, I'm hoping that he's financially in a position where he can do that, do that. He's a fucking time. grinder though, you know, like him or not. It's like crazy yeah. how much I subscribe to him. And I feel like he pops up on my subscribe list more than anything. I'm just like, all right, <laughs> I get it. So what about merchandising? Have you done, uh, I mean, I know you got your shirts, the Barf Bunny, but is that your first shirts? I kind of, know you have a two different styles, right? Or have you got on good revenue on merchandising? Yeah, does it sell well? Shirts don't sell well, but I still, I love, I like, I have a huge t-shirt collection. I love t-shirts. Yeah. So I've got, uh, I have a putrid production t-shirt design. I've got all of my different stuff. So I've got my YouTube channel, my podcast um and then i'm i've got t-shirts being made for barf bunny and erotic grotesque nonsense um but people buy the t-shirts but i really i don't know they're not they don't sell like crazy well this barf bunny this barf bunny uh sale right now a lot of people picked up on the barf bunny shirts so yeah i bought one so Yeah. yeah and that's kind of the problem with content nowadays is everything's for free 
So content creators are always selling t-shirts to make up the money that they're, you know, cause their content's going out for free. So whether it's music or movies or whatever. So now everyone's got a shirt. So I, I bet the shirt market is hard to compete with now. Because- well, like the problem with t-shirts is like, I, I really want all my, all my products to be of good quality. I don't want people to say like, Oh, my stuff is trash. And so I actually have like a buddy from high school who's got a t-shirt business and he actually screen prints everything, but you could go through like a T press or whatever, yeah. whatever those things are. And from everyone I've talked to, those shirts are pretty low quality. And after you wash them a couple of times, they start to fall apart. And I don't want that to be the case with my stuff. So I want people to know like that my cinema's underbelly shirt is going to last as long as I take care of it, you know? So nice. that's, that's part of it is I pay, I pay a little bit more to make sure that my shirts are actually good t-shirts so no, that's good that's cool yeah i think people that put out quality stuff it in the long run it you know word of mouth and you know just people's uh appreciation for it uh, also the longevity it really counts yeah so i've got different artists who do different um stuff you know so i've got an artist who who does my dvds all of my dvds are um, done by Martin Trafford and Martin Trafford's done, uh, art for different things. Uh, I did the design for cinema's underbelly and I did the design for, um, the uneasy train explorers club, but then I had some other people do the barf bunny design and the erotic grotesque nonsense designs. I think, I think we're about wrapping up the episode, um, really quick before, uh, some final questions, like what filmmakers do you think in the underground extreme scene are worth? looking into or should we look out for in the future right now uh so you guys sent me this question in advance and so so i like wrote down three people that i that really i think deserve a lot of attention and so the first one is jesse seitz who did gore effects for uh for barf bunny and she and marcus cook directed the documentary beyond horror i want to see that yeah it's a really good documentary and uh from that doing that documentary they were hearing a lot from people saying that women are not really into the underground art into extreme stuff. And so to kind of combat that uh, Jesse is currently working on an, an all women anthology project that uh, is like an extreme underground fucked up gore anthology with all female directors. Fuck so yeah. that's coming out. That's going to be super sick. She's that's directing awesome. uh, the six American Guinea pig film. And uh, she's also what we talked earlier about Felicia being in that, that film thrust Um, it's called thrust a shit fucked vile love story. And that's going to have Aaron Brown, Linnea Quigley, Felicia Fisher, like a fuck ton of really kick-ass people in it. And Jesse is doing like the, the lead on the gore effects for that. So she definitely, like, I honestly think within the next two years, Jesse Seitz is going to be like a household name for the underground. So I think she's definitely someone to pay attention to. The other person is Renee Wisner. Uh, he's a director that uh, he is like, to me, when we talk about Mondo films, he's pretty much the only person who's like single-handedly legitimately keeping that genre alive. There's a lot of people out there that are making shockumentary films and mixtapes from material that they have taken from other things. But Renee Wisner is like going out uh, like exploring the world like going to different parts of asia and actually like shooting his own mondo content he did mondo the, siam right yeah he did mondo siam he did the pulp films um 
And he, we're actually currently in the process of putting out his third film, which is called Michael on Murderbilia Memoriam. And it's basically a documentary on this guy who has this amazing murderbilia collection. So it's kind of like a deep dive into the whole murderbilia community. So that's really interesting too. But I mean, one thing I really respect about him is Mondo films tend to be pretty ethnocentric and pretty insensitive and exploitative. And he's, he's doing that genre, but he's doing it in a respectful way. And I think that that's really cool. So I really like that about him. And then the last person is Sander Cage, who does Sadomasaya Productions. I think that Lucifer Valentine and Sam Hell and whatever are getting a lot of attention for the, the fetish gore stuff. But Sander Cage is making some really sick stuff. He did Blood Porn. He did Tape X. He did Rape Love. And then talking about mixtapes, he did the My Kind of Hatred mixtape trilogy, which is incorporates kind of like the whole fetish gore thing and mixtapes together. So like the first film is like him getting a blowjob from some chick like inside of a pentagram. And then it's yeah, like have that. wiped so cool. around. Yeah. So I think Sander Cage definitely needs some attention too. And then uh, the last is just a doc. Uh, Tony Newton came out with a documentary called Gornography and it's got like Lucky Soretti in it and Patrick Fortin and a whole bunch of other really kick-ass directors. So I think if, people want to like know more about the underground they should definitely check out gornography too we yeah, actually watched, I watched the... that actually to kind of prepare for this interview because uh, oh. it has a big part with you in it so it just kind of gets into we actually watched stuff. it last week together on our uh prep for this podcast yeah oh, cool so that was cool seeing you on there um awesome anything else you want to plug before we we shut this down uh Check out Cinema's Underbelly. Check out the Uneasy Train Explorers Club. Check out Putrid Productions. Keep an eye out for Barf Bunny. And go support all of the different filmmakers that I mentioned in this podcast. Awesome. <laughs> well, thank you so much. And maybe sometime we'll have you on for a topic episode if you're ever down. And this yeah. is awesome. Yeah, no, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Cool. Appreciate it. I want to thank our guest, uh, Jonathan Doe. Uh, thank you for so much for uh, spending the time to chat with us. Um, that was a lot of good material that we went over. Um, I personally uh, love everything he's been doing. Um, I look forward to uh, seeing where he goes. And he has um, a lot of good visions, a lot of good ideas. And it was a, a joy to talk with him. Cool, so, cool to talk to someone else that you know we have so much in common with and is doing the same kind of creative stuff that we are doing. No, for sure. I learned a lot. Um, yeah, we, we talked with him quite a bit afterwards. Um, but yeah, we you know talking a good two hours or so afterwards. Yeah. Wow. It's like almost midnight now. <laughs> yeah. So um, really quick, uh, anything you learned from the episode that, you know? I mean, yeah. And just seeing that I feel like I'm in the, um, I'm doing the right thing. Um, I feel like I'm leading in the right directions and maybe not, you know, following everything he's doing, but seeing that um, some of the things that um, I'm doing and have ideas with, uh, um, I can have someone that I feel like can at least have my back um, or can be willing to collaborate with. And that's good to know. And it, it puts uh, reassurance of what I'm doing and um, builds a little bit of um, passion um, and, and just kind of confidence that um, what I'm doing is right. Yeah, it's awesome. It- makes me feel like i need to like i need to flex my creative bone a little bit more uh, kind of like I've, I've dabbled in filmmaking in my life and i think i'm kind of over it just because it's so much goddamn work but 
And if you're smart about it, you can really, you know, make something out of it. And, and that's what's crazy was he was talking about is how small of a staff um, you have been. It's kind of like a requirement now with COVID, but it's kind of like nice that you can just take a friend and, and just make a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't even have to be, you know, two things. Like there's like, what, four people? And then and they have a production that's probably going to do pretty well and like and put his um, name out there and, and, and do well with and that's a good thing, you know, um, the fact that you don't have to have this huge, massive staff and, and this, you know, cast list of the printout. You just put it as a picture. You don't even have to, like, have a... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, our our main point was to talk about buying bootlegs, but I think we got onto a lot of other topics. So I apologize if it may have strayed a little bit too far from the main topic, but I think you'll know that in our future episodes, we're going to be talking about bootlegs and mixtapes and all that stuff even more. But I think we did cover quite a bit here, and especially with the knowledge of Jonathan Doe, it helped helped a lot having him go over it. So, yep, thanks a lot, Jonathan Doe, for coming on the show. Um, as usual, you can find us on Spotify, Apple, Anchor, SoundCloud. We're going to try to start putting stuff up on YouTube just for those who like to consume their content on YouTube. Got an Instagram going. Yeah, we got an Instagram going. Uh, follow us on Facebook, uh, on our podcast page. We also have a group, which you can talk to us at any point. Yeah, cool. Well, that was a great episode. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you.